This is Dr. Matthew Dunn, host of The Future of Email Marketing. My guest today is Kisan Patel of Deal Room and M&A Science. Kisan, apologies for being late, but welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I was I was envying his mic setup. If you're listening to this and you notice that he sounds fantastic, I was envying his uh, his mic setup. You you uh, you're a frequent uh, guest on podcasts. Do you run one of your own as well? I do. I have two podcasts that I host. Uh, one about mergers and acquisitions, and yep. another about leadership. About leadership, both both uh, both are topics that uh, I was hoping we could uh, learn a bit from you about. Uh, give people a highline about your your company's plural. Well, our I'd say M and A Science is where everything fits under. It's okay, a compromise of several business lines that fall into either education or technology. Mm-hmm. Um, our business originally started with a product called Deal Room. Mm-hmm. where it's a project management product for managing mergers and acquisitions. Okay. Started with this focus on the due diligence part of M&A. When you yeah. go look to buy a company and you need to get in there and check all this information, make sure what's represented is accurate, identify the risks, yeah. be able to start planning for what you're going to do after you buy the company. And that was all typically done in Excel, highly inefficient. People would use these. <laughs> virtual data rooms in conjunction with those Excel trackers. Mm-hmm. We brought it all together, made it a lot more efficient that produced better results. Uh, then as we evolved, we started managing more of the integration, excuse me, the post-close activities mm-hmm. and then the pipeline. So it really become a full lifecycle management solution. And probably about five years ago, a friend of mine in marketing came to me one day and said, hey, man, why don't you do a podcast? And I was like, what the hell's a podcast? <laughs> and he's like, don't worry about it. It's, it's going to be the next big thing. You just got to do it. Yeah. So I, at the time, too, I was really contemplating this bigger problem I noticed in the industry where the industry itself was very siloed and lacked best practices. Every time we worked with a new client, they had such a unique way of looking at M&A and how to approach it. Mm-hmm. I thought, why isn't there any standardization on any of this stuff? Why, where's the evidence on how we're supposed to do M&A? Right. And so I married the idea of using a podcast as a platform to interview practitioners and learn from their lessons, learn from their experience, and in turn, identify some of the patterns, identify the trends, what are the proven techniques in the industry that actually work? And over time, we started documenting it. We started building our own frameworks around it, uh, built, a, uh, published a couple books, tons of blogs, eBooks. We run summits every quarter where we have practitioners teach all these best practices. Mm-hmm. And today we operate an online school and an academy program so others can, can learn uh, and make that education more accessible. Now it's a, a virtuous cycle because We'll take a lot of these best practices, then build software products or solutions around it. Yeah. Uh, hence, the combination of education and technology that go hand in hand. Yeah. Particularly in industry that's as antiquated as ours. Uh, in by industry, you're talking about M and A as an industry, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And wow, the notion of the notion of trying to find a, or derive the 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 science and and the the what works and the patterns. That's that's. A heck of a lift. Like, wow. I mean, what, uh, what makes it unique is that it's not like a lot of, when you think of finance technology, we always think of a lot of quantitative data 
that we're analyzing a bunch of data and patterns mm -hmm. and things sure, and finding sure. ways to optimize with yeah. technology tools. Yeah. M&A is not like that at all. We're doing, I mean, we're talking about the largest transactions in the world, but they're ultimately driven by people working together. And the problems you encounter on those transactions are people transactions. People not being able to work together, their butting heads, right. cultural differences, yeah. things of that sort. Uh, and that that's where it requires doing these qualitative interviews yeah. where you talk to practitioners and understand more about this, so those specific, those kind of challenges and how do you overcome? Cause you do a large transaction. The result of doing that transaction leads to a large magnitude of change management. And in fact, the largest magnitude of change management that organization is going to go through. Once you acquire the business, you need to, do several things to capture the value you intend, which oftentimes involves integrating that company into your business, mm -hmm. which you're essentially peeling the business back layer by layer and reattaching it to your parent organization. Uh, and that's a hard, it's again, people, all people related challenges and getting them aligned, focused on priorities and working together. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the for lack of a better word, conventional, wisdom about acquisitions is that they're as frequently unsuccessful in the long run as as successful and it sounds like you've made some real strides in in, in helping reverse that conventional wisdom that's what's trending we've nice. seen a, a big shift from a finance focus in m a to a yeah. people focus a people focus, i think right. more we continue that track mm -hmm. we can change some of those those um uh, those metrics that we've had in the past. Great coincidence. The, the, uh, the gen I had on for a conversation yesterday, a friend of mine, Elliot Ross from, uh, dialed in from London and he is on the backside of being acquired his company taxi for email. Um, uh, not super big, but wonderful in their niche got acquired and their acquirer got acquired like literally a month later. So he's living in this, uh, he's living in this, you know, nested Russian doll of, of company structures and grappling with, I'm not an entrepreneur running my relatively small SaaS. I'm now part of a good size organization based in Amsterdam through the company in the U.S. that acquired us. And he had some, he had some great insights. Uh, you know, it's some of it's good, some of it's bad, but it's the people issues um, that he, and the culture issues, which are people issues. That, that he was uh, focusing on as we talked about that. How do you get a handle on culture and people issues in a science way? Um, some of the stuff is bringing about these conversations really early and trying to get alignment. Mm -hmm. um, so thinking of what the end state you're looking to achieve from doing the acquisition mm -hmm. and what that's gonna look like bringing that to the very front end of the deal process so that you can gather executives from both sides to align and identify what it's going to take to get there and achieve it, mm -hmm. uh, outline that go to market because ultimately each organization respectively is there to serve their customers as best yeah. they can. Sure. sure. Coming together, what is that going to look like? How are we going to do that? What's that going to look like for the customer? So that that's the objective component. When we look at each organization's respected cultures, yeah. it starts with values. And I think if each executive CEO can bring that to the discussion where we can talk about our organization's values and talk it about detail. 
sometimes we use some pretty vague terms when we describe our values, but they, if we can expand on them, that leads to a better understanding of culture and leadership approaches where we can identify with each other what's uniquely different, where we have some commonalities, where we may have some stark differences that could create some friction and Mm -hmm. may even warrant for us not to even pursue the deal because of that. I was going to ask you about that. Do you end up saying, you know, based on the science, this is probably not going to work? There's, I say the more of the seasoned executives can realize that, especially if you bring in your HR folks mm-hmm. early in the process. Oh, nice. Um, w- and w- which is key. When you look at today's businesses, it's all about the people. We're not buying factories and things, hard assets anymore. Right. We're buying these hot technology companies that we want are looking to acquire some unique capability yep. that we can bring about uh, and extract value from. Well, there's some pretty sophisticated, intelligent folks behind that unique technology and it's their way of working that ultimately you're acquiring and you need to be able to preserve that. So the people is extremely important and the mm-hmm. more you can put considerations, have an understanding of their culture, the people, what drives them, what incentivizes them, how are you going to retain them? Yeah. Those things are really important to get understanding of earlier, the better. That's uh, that's incredibly refreshing to hear. I have to say because I, most of my uh, most of my uh, decades of work have been around software in some way, shape, or form. Software, large, complex systems, and it's not a mature it, it's not a mature field, right? If you're if you're acquiring a company with a software platform or service. It's not all perfectly bolted together, documented to the nth degree, best practices. The people who built it are going to be invaluable in making it actually be part of another organization. And if they go away, it's probably going to fall on its butt. Big time. Yeah. We've yeah. Seen it happen. Yeah. For fascinating. Sure. And so we're, we're, we're back to the, we're back to, or maybe more, more about the human dynamics is what you're saying now than the, the sort of mechanical and financial uh, uh, vectors in, in that, that job of merging companies. Huh? Um, yeah. And, and how, <laughs> how did you get here? Like, how did you end up in this field? I started probably when I was like 10 years old, my dad would complain. He's like, he, this kid's, uh, always talking about big numbers. He keeps talking about everything in millions and billions. I used to draw out these fancy cars and put lasers and rocket boosters on them and yeah. put a price tag. Yeah. And here's this, $10 million car and whatnot. Uh, he thought something was wrong with me. And then, uh, I don't know. I, 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 when I do one of these big interviews or we close a big deal with a large corporation, I always go back. Uh, you know, I think last year we had a $2.6 billion deal done on our software platform and an wow. $11 billion deal done with a fortune 500 company. So I had to call dad up and say, hey, dad, we're in the billions. Uh, <laughs> you know, so there was that interest. I, I actually uh, started by failing out of undergrad. I, that Having that short attention span got to me. I struggled with these lecture-based classes, failed out of undergrad, found my way in a real estate career. Where I wasn't successful at it. I couldn't connect with the real estate sale as it was more of an emotional sale. Mm-hmm. And I, I was always interested in business. And I, I was fortunate enough to find a gentleman, the only person in our company that was actually selling commercial real estate, and we're talking to him. I, I got enough inspiration 
to find a role in a little boutique M&A advisory practice with a couple guys that were just starting out. Mm -hmm. And it was, they, they gave me a shot. I got, uh, my feet grounded there. I loved looking at numbers. I like taking P and L's and building a story on where the opportunity is in those businesses, helping folks understand the numbers better. Wow. And ended up selling a few small businesses the first year. Uh, Didn't feel compelled to stay with the firm because I didn't believe they had a concrete strategy in place. Mm -hmm. Went and started my own practice at an early age. I think I was about 22 years old. Started consulting and selling. I think I was just selling gas stations in the early beginning because I knew they had a real estate asset attached to it. It moving me up from a few hundred thousand dollar businesses to the one to three million. Then I got into hospitality. I did that, started private businesses, went up to corporate, extended stay, Kimpton, extended stay America, uh, La Quinta. And then I ended up working with small financial institutions, capital raise, buy side, sell side. And we're talking like community banks. Uh, and then uh, the recession happened and that, where I was really interested in the tech space because I was getting burnt out. I feel like I hit this glass ceiling running a boutique firm. Every time I got at bat with the large $100 million deal, I always lost it. And I thought this is not fun. You'd always lose it to a brand name firm. So I, I got involved um, with this tech startup that led me to see how the industry worked and got intrigued by the way those software engineers were using project management tools to manage building software. Mm-hmm. And that's what led to the inspiration for starting Deal Room in 2012. Wow. Okay. Wow. You really, you really came into that. You, you, you came into it from, from the field itself, and 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 now you're systematizing it, which is uh, that's probably a better way to do it, right? Because <laughs> you've really got an understanding how the how the uh, the dynamics of M and A, the the people dynamics, the financial dynamics function. So automating it streamlining it, systematizing it, sciencizing it um, is, is legitimately grounded in experience. You're not just looking from outside saying, I think we can make a platform for this. It's fun. It's what we can do. We can get better and better at it and we yeah. can apply it at scale. Nice. Nice. Fascinating. Um, I've read a few books over the years on, on, on culture business culture, company culture, and the, the challenges of, of, of that and the role that, the important role that plays. And it's been fascinating to watch culture become not just a, not just a fuzzy wuzzy background word, but, but really a, a pivotal thing that people recognize about success and, and, and failure. You know, some companies are very good at acquisition and they've got the culture stuff dialed in. Others that do a lot of it seem to flop at it. And I think in part because because they ignore that. Have you run into companies that are like that you really like working with? Like when they're involved in an M and A deal, you know the long term success is is likely. I, it's almost like we're at a point where we choose our clients based on our compatibility with their culture. Good for you. Wow. When, when we when we feel aligned, we 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 kind of there's things that we even look up to them. Like we're modeling, we're learning from them, we're inspired by them. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean. I think we had one, we usually do like a pitch deck to a company and we always have our little tagline on there. Well, we pitched to a company where like their tagline is better than ours. So we changed (laughs) our tagline for that presentation and told them that and saying, look, we're doing this because you're, you know, we changed it because yours is better and we want to use yours because we identify with it. Um, And and so I I, I like that when you can actually really work with an organization that you can identify with. And Mm -hmm. I think early days, you got to do what you got to do. You're going to work and try to get any account you can. And and that's uh, part of the 
the journey. But once you get to that point, you really find where you've created your capabilities of building value. Uh, then you can be more selective about those companies you work with. And yeah. even thinking about that, then when you align around that, then you know there's common beliefs, especially for us. Like we're big about agile and organizations that strive. Maybe they may be traditional, but they're actively striving to move to more of an agile based approach. Mm -hmm. That works really well. We were able to help them there. And, uh, you know, they may have some components of it. Now we understand that maybe they're uh, at a certain point where they're getting a level of successful deals, but at least we know we're part of that journey to help them improve. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there, there's definitely a big learning curve in doing M&A. Like your first couple of deals, you're probably going to screw some major things up. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so the, the maturity, I think, is a big factor. Yeah. I, I think coupling that with have they really evolved when we look at being change oriented? Do they have that culture of continuous improvement? Are they at, at being adaptive? Are they trying new things? There's organizations that may have been very mature, they've been around really brand, big brand names you've heard of. But they're doing the same thing they did 20 years ago. Yeah. And and that's for us is like a, a tough, tough one, especially when we know that change is going to be extremely difficult uh, when, when they don't have that that buy-in across the organization to, to make those changes. Um, yeah, and it's becoming, I think it's harder and harder to do the same thing for 20 years, right? The, the pace of the pace of change being what it is. And they're not, not going to change. And it, hard, it gets really hard to be optimistic about the results. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that, 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 that's got to be a, a pit of the stomach sensation when you can observe that and say, man, I, I don't know if that's going to work. Uh, I hate to see that. I'm, I'm, curious, I'm curious about something, a bit of a meta question, but marketing of your own company is it mostly word of mouth inside the the world of m a at this point based on your success you know i i always thought word of mouth i thought we had some virality virality mm -hmm. built into our product because if we host an m a deal there's going to be a hundred couple you know to a couple hundred people involved sure right i'm selling my company and i got bankers in there, consultants in there, lawyers in there, the other party in there. Yeah. And, and I, I always thought, oh, well, if they get the exposure to the product, they're going to want to use it for one of the other deals. Yeah. That did not happen. That did not happen wow. the way I thought. Wow. Um, you know, that word of mouth, that did not happen the way I thought. I We see it now. You know, we we're talking 10 years in the business. Five first years were very stagnant. It took a lot. It, our industry is very conservative. Yeah. Uh, so it takes a while to really build trust and the traction and really build security properly. There's mm -hmm. a lot of things that go into that. So the first yeah. five years is a big R and D period. Yeah. The last five years is when we started building traction. Um, but it, it, we started seeing in the last couple of years where now we, we're starting to see that. So it really took a long, uh, you have to have a level of some market penetration before that, that starts coming in play. Okay. Um, most of our business, we generate, we do generate a lot of inbound business. But it, it's coming because this podcast that we started five years ago has truly evolved into a media business of its own. I mean, we have over 350 published blogs, eBooks. Wow. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it's just the art of, well, I guess you should say art, but science of the way you repurpose your content from a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We transcribe yeah. it. Yep. We've been able to do a lot of creative things with it, pull out highlights, things of that sort. Um, you know, but we published the book. And I, I always look at the book, like maybe there's a hundred people in the world that read this book. Uh, but there's probably about a hundred thousand people that know about it because 
for the longest time, we would just take snippets of it, post it on LinkedIn and get a whole discussion thread going mm-hmm. off of that. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. kept doing that over and over for a full year. And if you added up all those views, I mean, we've yeah. accumulated so many different uh, engagements, views, comments, likes, and so forth. Uh, so it's, you know, the, the way you have a, a content strategy that built out to your overall marketing, I think that that's what really drove a lot of the awareness and interest into our various products. Yeah, every, everyone's everyone's a publisher, right? I mean, in a, in a, in a fundamental sense now, everyone's a publisher. And, and, and I would bet there's also been, there've also been sp- like speaking and public exposure opportunities on the back of the book from people who haven't necessarily read it. Republishing a book is good. It gives you a lot of credibilities. Um, yeah. We published it early 2020. Okay. So we published this book and then, you know, COVID lockdown happened shortly after. <laughs> uh, but, you know, coming out of it, I remember second half of the year, I got invitations to go speak at a lot of large companies, mm-hmm. IBM's, the 3M's, Cisco's. and. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's nice. It, it, it does give you credibility a lot. Like it's used speaking engagements. There's not a lot of conferences going on, but it does make it a lot easier to apply and, and get submitted for, uh, uh speaking at, at various events. But then yeah. and we have organizations reach out and say, Hey, we need help with this problem. And you wrote a book about this problem. Right. 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 Yeah. I think I, I've got, I've got a book about writing a book, uh, Dan Kennedy, um, and a co-author, I believe. Have have a you know like look you really need to do this and the the speaking side of it kind of amuses me because I've I've seen any number of people who will take what they wrote in an entire book and and basically try and do it in a half an hour to an hour for the people who re- wouldn't sit down and read the book you know like let me give you the highlights since since you probably didn't sit down and flip the pages and read the thing and and then lather rinse repeat do that over uh, over and over well that's fascinating that. To, to hear a content strategy out play out so coherently and and particularly to hear that podcasting has played an integral role in that not not everybody jumped on that bandwagon as early as you did i i think we're fortunate in our industry i think there was only about five podcasts about m a when we wow. started okay, now there's yeah. over 50 and we're ranked right at the top are you nice nice I, well i mean that's not just because you started early it's obviously a quality thing um, as well, because I suspect you you wouldn't be at the top if you weren't doing a great job at it. But um, I talked with a gent the other day who runs a podcast for the like new home building industry, and he had much the same uh, much the same impact for his business. He's like, people know me because we've been doing this for a long time, and they, you know they're starting to come to us, and and they know who I am when I you know, when I reach out to them and so on. So is it, is it getting saturated, the podcast space? I, I It's tough starting a podcast now. I started a personal podcast earlier, well, sort of middle of last year. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a passion project. For me, I, I have three young children and I'm interested in exposing them to leadership lessons early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, well, if I'm doing it for my kids, why not just record the content and uh, share it with others? But then also with my daughter, I, I always preach my principles. I thought, you know, dad doesn't maybe doesn't know all this stuff. Why don't we make a point to go interview other people and he can learn from them? <laughs> but now it's, it's been fun. It's been a little series I do. She's got a little jewelry business. We're starting to get speakers about from the industry. And I'm teaching her how to network and do all these uh, other little fun things that... Wow. Uh, 
yeah. future entrepreneur uh, in the making there, it sounds like. Yeah, she's uh, she's doing good. You know, I uh, started with the little lemonade stand. I think when she was six years old. There you go. And, uh, <laughs> there you at go. first, I wasn't I wasn't into it, man. I, I just said, you know, I don't know, I know. And then I thought about it. I was like, you know, this is actually an opportunity to teach her a lot of the principles. Yeah. And I said, all right, honey, I don't know if you've chose the right dad to do this lemonade stand with, but uh, we're not taking any shortcuts. Right. We're we're going to Costco. We're getting real lemons. Right. You started hand squeezing on them. Like after a while, I realized like we were located uh, relatively close to Wrigley Field in Chicago. So she sells lemonade on a game day. I mean, she's making a couple hundred bucks. That's awesome. I mean, and, next thing you know, I got a commercial juicer there. Yeah, I got, yeah. got her brothers as like little contract employees running back and forth to get lemonade. <laughs> that's wonderful. And I mean, a lemonade stand, it's a cliche, but that's a full business. You got supply supply chain issues you know finance like it's a complete it's a complete little micro business you know what trips me out is how many people knew about that lemonade stand i would go meet people through business networking and i would mention it like wait a minute i bought lemonade from there uh or even i I met the police officer one time and he was like i bought lemonade from there that's wonderful that is really (laughs) great so funny she'll be telling that story the rest of her life too (laughs) yeah hopefully she remembers Uh, but she had a little Kind of like a bar cart, we, we turned into the lemonade stand, put a big, giant, rainbow-colored umbrella. Mm-hmm. That was it. it was That's it. Visibility and 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 the uh, it's the, it's the cliche. I forget the book. I think it's a hundred million dollar deal that I read recently. It's like look, sell sell to a thirsty crowd. Um, that's principle number one. <laughs> Whatever you're selling, if you've got a thirsty crowd, it's a lot easier. And she's got I, a thirsty crowd, especially on game day. She came to me after COVID happened and she's like, dad, dad, what, what am I going to do? Like, I can't do the lemonade stand. <laughs> they, they cancel the games and, and whatnot. And I said, honey, you got to do just like the rest of the world. You got to f- refocus on your digital distribution model. Yeah. Yeah. Adapt. And, uh, so today she uh, has her own brand, Fueglo, that she sells handmade jewelry online. Wow. That's so really she, 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 she took it, took on it. Um, I don't get much of her time now when I ask her for help because she used to record commercials for my podcast. I yeah. Didn't have time for me. She's busy running. She's busy. I was going to say, right, my, my, my mental note is here. I think I'm going to have to get in touch with Kisan and say, can I get your daughter on as a guest? This sounds fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, probably more adept at social media than folks of our generation. Yeah, she's working on it. She's got TikTok. She's definitely getting the views and likes, but now we're, we're talking about conversion. Um, but she's very much, she's at 11, so she's got the, starting to hit the teenage where, yeah. Hey, yeah, you don't need to tell me what to do. I got this. Uh, so, I don't know. She'll figure it out. I'll be, you'll have to drop me, a, drop me a note. Like, tell her you were on a podcast about email marketing and see if she rolls her eyes because um, the younger they are, the more they go, oh, email. And then there's a certain threshold where they start realizing, oh, you can keep control of that that's a direct relationship that's actually invaluable um i think she's getting a little bit of it because her store is on shopify and shopify yeah. will have your sort of recovery campaigns that they they yeah. built up pretty much out of the box yep um so i i think she that's probably the next thing you know email marketing is a, an interesting one to to chat about too because I feel like we, we, we had an interesting experience with it where I, I, I got, you know what, my early consulting practice is what made it was we were so early. I mean, we, I started back in 2003. 
Okay. So, you know, I mean, back then you were doing fax. I don't know if you remember the, the fax email. You did get a program to like mass fax people. Mass fax, yeah. That, that's what we were doing. So I ran a newsletter through fax. And, that, and then I, I remember migrating it to email. And ba- back then, you everybody, checked edge, their e- yeah. everybody checked their email. Everybody's like a 70 plus percent open rate. I don't think the first email tools you could actually track. They didn't even have tracking on it, but you knew. No, you just yeah. had a high, high open rate on those things. Yeah. Um, that was a consult starting this tech company. I, I knew email was going to be important. I wanted to do a newsletter and started doing, uh, that, um, but you know, it wasn't like the kosher thing. Like today I, I it blows my mind how many times I have to hit unsubscribe every time I check my inbox, yeah, at least yeah. six to yeah. 10 times a day. I'm yeah. hitting unsubscribe, unsubscribe, unsubscribe. Yeah. I, and, I, you know, yeah. Do you scan by who it's from and then delete without reading as well? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It just, whatever it is, I don't know. Let's unsubscribe, delete. If I can't, I hate the worst is when it's like reply to me to opt out. It's like, you're getting the block and then spam <laughs> done. Um, so now, now I kind of learned like you, you really got to be organic about it. Cause even that first list, we were sort of just throwing people in there and mm-hmm. doing that, you know, about 10 years ago, we got away with it. I think back then, yeah, we got our brand out there, but we really didn't have a clear uh, distinction on what we actually did. Yeah. So the, it, you know, it ended up being a big overhead. We're doing all these interviews adjacent with it and, and stuff. And I ended up stopped doing it, but now we rebuilt it and did it in a very organic way. Um, now it becomes like a really, once you do organic, it's just so much valuable. Like it's so now realizing it from actually doing it. We, I think we peaked out at 38,000 subscribers but now I, I run a newsletter with 3,000 and it's way more powerful. Way more powerful because they're really interested in what you have to say. Oh, yeah. You, you could send like a call to action for something specific and it, boom, you get a significant like higher than what we had from you in 38,000 people that are actually responding to it. That's cool. Uh, in fact, when people sign up, we get information, quite a bit of information to really understand what they're looking to get out of that newsletter. Yeah. And that, and that helps too. I think the thing we learned is you know, don't look at it as just lead gen. Like, I got this person, they send their information, I'm going to go call them right away. You know, if you have a direct call to action and it's a direct request for a call, great, fine. But somebody sign up a newsletter, don't do that. Yeah. Uh, but I think when you wait a couple months and they've, they've really understood your content, then they, they that's probably when the time is you can actually reach out, especially if you capture that information of, you know, what are you trying to get out of this? And then you can follow up. It's like, hey, you mentioned that you're looking to get this out of the newsletter. Mm-hmm. Are, are we doing that? You know, how can we get better? Let's get feedback. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about some of your challenges. Right. And, right. and you know, how can we help you with some of those things? Um, it's interesting. I'm, I'm wondering where email is going to go because I, I like the resurgence when we've seen some of these millennial publications or mil- geared towards millennials like The Hustle and Morning Brew mm-hmm. where they just did the right thing. You know, they kind of taken it and we've seen traditional print media try to go digital and really struggle with it. But they're like, you just got to have a good voice and you got to have concise information that people can get up to speed about what's going on in the world in a yeah. short amount of time. Yep. Uh, and that's done really well, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious on your, your perception. Where, where do you see it going? Because it's still, it is the direct channel, but it's, it's getting very noisy. It's very noisy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I, that's an opportunity for an entrepreneur. Somebody could solve that. Somebody can clear my inbox from all the <laughs> garbage. Yeah. I would pay a couple hundred bucks at this point. I would pay 
maybe even up to 500 bucks a month for that because I'm, I have somebody manually doing it. I literally. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's like I suspect that's one of the one of the, the probably job number one for uh, for the virtual assistant industry is, you know, help me sort out my inbox. Um, you know, you've got you've got some monopoly monopoly players that are parked on the inbox piece of it. Um, Google being the really obvious one, Apple being a secondary one, Yahoo as well. Um, they're trying to solve it with automation, but it's pretty messy. Um, you know, I've got a couple of accounts that flow through Gmail. I watch what goes in the promotions tab versus the inbox versus elsewhere. I'm like, yeah, no, like it, 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 nice try. But what matters to me isn't necessarily obvious to your AI. And so I don't think, I don't think there's enough, uh, I don't think there's enough, uh, discretion and smarts to automate that task yet. Um, what, what about with email campaigns? Have you ever seen a tool that ties an email campaign with the placement ads? And you know, and I don't want to get into like the HubSpot or those kind of automation tools because they feel like they're still really manual to do there. Like you still got to like create your email thing, and that's a separate thing. And then you go yeah. in there and you got yeah. a workflow for putting ads up, and it's separate. Yeah. yeah. But something somebody had a workflow that really tied it all together. Because I, I feel like that's such a powerful thing is if you can have some kind of uh, email campaign with a call to action, but then you had your retargeting in, yeah. in conjunction with it. But, you know, it, it tends to be a bit of siloed effort. Sometimes in our company, it's different people doing those things. Yeah. And then that real fluid continuity doesn't exist. And the, one of the fundamental issues behind that, I think, is that email itself as a as an end-to-end -end digital channel has a very broken feedback mechanism the you know the way you know whether or not an email campaign is getting engagement are people opening this isn't actually an email mechanism it's a web mechanism it's a you know pixel being opened via http and now thanks to apple that's that's not accurate as it used to be Absent, uh, absent solution we're bringing to market. So doing that uh, signal noise uh, feedback thing to refine what you send is very hard. I got an email the other day. I mentioned this to someone. I got an email from Litmus. This is a, that's a big tech company in the email space specifically. The message from them had a big button. It said, do you want to keep, from hearing, keep hearing from us, essentially? And I clicked yes. But it was a bold move on their part. A lot of email marketers would never give you the opportunity to exit. They're so desperate to hang on to those leads. You know, your 38,000 versus your 3,000. You effectively called it down to the ones that really were engaged, however you went about that. 3,000 is not a huge number, right? It's a lot of work you invested in getting down to those 3,000. And a lot of that was not through the mechanisms of email itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's a daunting lift. Oh, man, Kisan, I'm bummed. I actually got, somehow I got scheduled with another conversation in three minutes. So I have to wrap up ours. Um, but it's sure. been a pleasure learning about the M&A world from you. Like, I'm like, wow, I'm really impressed. Hey, it's my pleasure. Happy to have the conversation. And if someone's listening, where do they, where, what's the best way for them to, to hunt down you or the company and connect? interested in learning anything about M&A, they can visit mascience.com. We have tons of blogs, ebooks, podcasts, all related to M&A. Yep. Just big advocates of 
getting exposure to the industry. There's tons of careers in M&A yeah. that uh, are definitely more accessible than people think they are. You don't have to go to Ivy League school and, you know, get an MBA. There you uh, go. What's I'm the title of your book, by the way? Agile M&A. Okay. Got it. Got it. Off to, I'm going to have to uh, put that in my put that in my reading list and then uh, maybe pick your brain afterwards. Thanks so much for making the time today. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right. My guest has been Kisan Patel of M&A Science and Deal Room. Thank you, sir. Burp, burp, burp.